0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. This is a really special, first of all, kickoff to our Educators Corner series where you're going to get a lot of pedagogy discussions, academic discussions, conversations with fellow educators, uh, teachers from K through 12, college instructors. So anything that has to do with the world of education and teaching. So I thought, why not kick it off with an interview that I actually got to do for the Association for Writing Across the Curriculum to kick off their own series, Queer in Academia. So they were kind enough to invite me onto their show. And it is up on YouTube, so go to our show notes, And you'll see the video interview on YouTube. So definitely make sure you watch it. You get to see my facial expressions, my gestures, and also the amazing interviewer. So I was not the interviewer, which is a change. Things were a little flipped and I loved it. Uh, Maria Cardona Perez is such a great interviewer. And thank you so much, Maria, for bringing me on. Thanks to everyone at the association for writing across the curriculum. Here's a little teaser to get you all in the mood of being an openly gay educator. And you can hear all of my uh, journey and also how I continue to bring awareness to being openly gay in education, but also the importance of amplifying LGBTQ plus voices in all aspects of academia and in public humanities, such as this podcast. Enjoy, everyone. And sometimes I will hear that talking point that they have to no, exactly 100% of everything they're teaching. And I'm like, no, no, let it go. Like, and that to me is the writing process too, is the perfectionism of your mm-hmm. voice. And it's like, I love now when I get, like, I want critiques, like I want feedback. I want, oh, okay, where, where can this develop? Because we're not going to be 100% in our grammar. The finished product is going to be so different because it should be collaborative. That's, yeah. That's how books get published too. Like when you interview authors, I'm like, oh wait, it went through 10 hands. Like it took you five years. Like it's so important to know how do people get a finished product out there?
1: challenges do you think lgbtq plus scholars and academics face that a lot of people are unaware of or that you know academics outside of that scope don't really you know face
0: yeah i really like this question it's um i mean i'll start with an anecdote just because i like to work from the tangible yeah of course so i think if you had asked me that question when I had started my PhD, which is now going on, mm, entered in 2014, so everyone can do the math out there, but (laughs) I'm in my last year, but it's been a really exciting process to see my development as an openly gay scholar. Like, I think when I came in, I was really listening to traditional academic um, models, like Mm -hmm. really listening to, what I would call gaslighting rhetoric without that intention to gaslight, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So like, for example, um, I was wanting to do LGBTQ scholarship, but I kind of didn't want to put myself out there personally. But then like I started to develop the voice, like especially there was a Whitman. So I work a lot on 19th century American literature and queering it so with Whitman he's my main focus Walt Whitman the poet and there was his um, 200th birthday in 2019 so I put together a symposium and had different talks about Whitman and I actually presented And, and it was there where I added sort of my memoir of how I even got into Whitman which was through coming out and like started with that journey of coming out and how literature really opens these conversations. And then I went into more of the scholarship. So it's kind of a blend. Some people call it auto theory. Like when you use your personal life and Mm -hmm. then um, bring in the scholarship. So I think that moment for me was a real game changer. And I started to get some backlash of realizing, Oh, this is not following the traditional mold of an LGB, like if you're an LGBTQ scholar who does this work, like it taught me a lesson of be prepared to not let my voice get shut down. So like now I'm, I'm like, you know, my trajectory has really developed. So it's good to look back at that and then see where I am now. I mean, you asked, right, the challenges and like, that's, I guess, one example that's specific to my experience but even I remember so like anyone who's out there who has gone through a PhD in the humanities there's like the comprehensive exam the oral exam some call it and you basically have to show that you can um for literature go over 200 years uh, Mm of different literary texts and um for me though I did a Victorian so You know, you mentioned Wilde. he was on there, Dickens, um, a lot of poetry, because I really like the pre-Raphaelites, Christina Rossetti. Um, And then I also had All-Americans. So like that was my I was doing 100 years, but with two different Mm -hmm. uh, continents. And. When I wanted to add, like, I actually remember. And again, like none of this I want to say is coming from ill intentions, it's more of what I've seen of just not being informed of like why it's so important that we have this discussion right now is because I was told by um, my Victorian um, advisor um, that like my queer texts that I wanted, like queer authors or like even Jewish authors should all be like in a separate section. So they like, they were kind of in their own closet on the list. Right. And it made me uncomfortable at the time, I remember, because I'm thinking I'm trying to integrate this into this um, core group of texts. And um, however, I did have like some really good resolution with that advisor, like talking kind of through that process because it was um, definitely an experience where um, I was being given um, a lot of that traditional, like I'll keep saying traditional, but basically um, being molded to go into the university as a certain scholar who hides a part of his sexuality to like be employable. Yeah, And at a certain point, I just learned from that experience, I don't want to be in a place that does not value my openness. Like I'm not going to straighten myself as a scholar. Like that's just very antithetical to who I am Mm -hmm. as an academic, a humanist, a scholar, uh, a person. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I I think it can definitely in a way resonate with, with what you're saying. Cause I went to, I did my bachelor's in like literal Amish County, Ohio. So it was very conservative, very you know, people were very used to everyone kind of being the same. Um, you know, we spent years trying to get them to approve like a like a um a gay straight alliance because they were like no, not in our community and and you know, it was it was a lot of what you were mentioning of like, you know, I knew that some people were, but you know, I knew that most people weren't coming from a place of wanting to be hurtful or offensive, they just didn't have like that knowledge and and you know you kind of mentioned communication as a, as a resolution like a tool for resolution. So would you say that that's kind of I guess a path forward or you know a tool that um, the universities really like you know administrators and, and faculty can kind of use to to be more inclusive and, and more welcoming?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Maria. I mean, I'm so happy that I got this fellowship in the spring. Um, I'm actually just found out. I guess I'm (laughs) very here (laughs) that I'm gonna continue working with the um, communication department in the College of Arts and Sciences um, because I started to do a social media campaign. It was for diversity equity. It's called the Idea Grad Fellowship. And from that, I was creating short videos that profiled grad students like who do feminist work, queer work, um, you know, focus on race studies. Um, And I realized how important it is for us to have the access with social media. Like for me, social media has actually become one of the most profound ways to just engage with what I love, informing the general public about Mm-hmm. what happens at a university because it's like so mysterious and is what led me to create my ivory tower boiler room podcast because I realized that these are free episodes and I started to binge watch podcast episodes during the pandemic and I'm like well, you know what that's a really interesting way to bring radio like mm-hmm. a radio type program into an app and then why is there not something for grad students at first it's- Start with grad students um Mm -hmm. and hopefully i'm not going off on a tangent here (laughs) but um like when you speak of with communication i just feel that um i wouldn't be able to have such a platform i do now to amplify um lgbtq plus voices and um for me the podcast there's been this journey so it'll be two years in august and um now i'm interviewing like New York Times bestselling authors. And I've interviewed reality TV gossip experts. And I just love showing what it means when we have these like quote unquote academic conversations with those who specialize in the arts and the culture. And it brings, right? Like asking questions about the Real Housewives from an academic view, she talks a lot about narrative and literariness. So I just... I love that um, there's a way to utilize social media that opens up um, instead of closing down the conversations. Like I like that it mixes our specialty with the public.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think, you know, even if it's, you know, just, you know, having your podcast available, right. Or having resources, even if within your university, you don't feel comfortable kind of, you know, speaking to anybody, because, you know, maybe it's a little bit more conservative, or, you know, maybe you're just not ready. You know, when I, when I went into college, I, um, I'm Puerto Rican, born and raised here. And so I, but I'm very white passing, but I still had my moments where I just, I knew that I didn't quite fit. And I mean, as I grew in in my time in in college, you know, I, my, uh, the English department was fantastic. And they were like, yeah, just, don't don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Um, you know they were very encouraging. And, you know, by the time I, I graduated, I I had the confidence. Right. And I had that voice you were you were talking about. But at first I was like, no, I I would go to my professor's office afterwards and be like, let's chat about this. And they'd be like, why don't you say this in class? And I, you know, it's, it's very intimidating. So I think you, you know, providing this podcast. Right. And using social media, a lot of people connect through social media where maybe if on their campuses, they don't have anyone, they can reach out to other people and and still be like, hey, how are you doing this? Or, you know, kind of grow from there.
0: Yeah, and I love like what you're explaining with your um, experience. Like, it is difficult. I want to recognize that for everyone, you know, who's consuming this in some media way. Because I feel very privileged to be white, to be a man, to be cisgender. Um, you know, to have certain class privileges, I want to recognize because I think in academia, that's not always talked about. I do think it's really important to um, recognize, like you said, you might not feel really comfortable being that open in your department, like, especially depending, I'm lucky I'm on Long Island, I'm in the New York City metro area. A lot of the professors go back and forth to Manhattan. I go to Manhattan a lot. So like, it's a certain openness. I'm from New Jersey originally. So like very similar kind of model of being open. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think that, like you've said, there's so much you can do with social media. Like I've even started thinking of doing a workshop about training academics in social media, because like with Instagram, for example, I just love that You can tag so many different authors and creators and they respond like, and like a lot of that to me is it's a form of networking, but it's not networking in that model of I need to give my business cards. And I think there's still a model that exists out there that that's how networking happens, but really networking, in my opinion, like, yes, you can. I love going to conferences. I just came back from San Francisco and a queer history conference. But at the same time, I was also like hosting live tweeting the presentations and finding people's accounts and connecting with them. And it can be done, right? To open up these conversations. And I think we need more, especially with diversity and equity. We need more of these channels Open, like the conference shouldn't be the end
2: exactly. of the
0: conversations. And for a long time, I feel like it's kind of been the door is closed. And you're like, wait, what happened? Like, I loved these conversations. I want to continue, you know, talking about my favorite theory or author. I
1: guess it's just more accessible, right? It's more open. And even if, like, you know, for example, you weren't able to attend the conference, right? You have people who are putting those resources out there and you can still kind of feel like you can participate, you know, um, from afar. What is the importance of creating welcoming spaces in academia for LGBTQ plus people?
0: I would say the main purpose is to instill a pathway in academia where you're modeling representation, even though I know there's like debates about, right, how important is representation? And I get all those nuances, of course, but I think right away, if you don't have LGBTQ representation in your faculty for the first that's like number 1 or you have you don't have anyone teaching LGBTQ topics mm-hmm. is an issue. I've even had these conversations at Stony Brook University where I am that it shouldn't just be on a person who's part of a community like the I'll, I'll stick with the LGBTQ community like you can't just assume that's what they're going to teach but you also have to have the whole department implement those conversations into their curriculum. I would say that's needs a little work, like a space like this. I love, I think we should, there should be, this is a great model, what you're doing Maria and your organization, because this should be happening at universities everywhere. There should be open conversations like this. Yeah. Um, I will shout out though. There's an amazing organization at Stony Brook called Cell. Um, So shout out to Carol out there who I am really close with. Um, they have a lot of these diversity and equity um, pedagogy discussions, which are Mm -hmm. important. Um, But yeah, sorry, back to the question. Okay. And then I would say as a grad student, there is a representation with the LGBTQ community in my English department, but there's not really, and this goes for any marginalized community, there's not really a space in the department that fosters The community, like I really do think it would be important to have a mixer or something informal, like meetup chats, lunch, um, like a group that just meets. I don't know once a month to just say, okay, how are we checking in about our work? Do we feel pressure to not go into our work because we're being too open? Right, like Mm -hmm. a lot of the things I went through, I feel could have been facilitated by like a faculty member leading a discussion group that's not graded, not a lot (laughs) of the times, I will say as an academic too, sometimes we want to hyperanalyze everything. And it's like, no, no, no. Sometimes we just need a coffee and have like a Starbucks chat. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned it at the start, right, that you originally felt this pressure to kind of hide your identity. And I think sometimes when we think of creating welcoming spaces, I think the default is to just be like, okay, well, there's just like an LGBTQ kind of club. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, as, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's with faculty and it's across disciplines, right? You know, I think some disciplines kind of open up that space a little bit more. Usually the humanities are a little bit more, you know, kind of open in, in that department, but, you know, I think it's also important to create that across disciplines and also kind of bringing people together across disciplines instead of just being like, well, there is this group, but they're only like, you know, they're all English majors, for example, you know, and it's like, oh, well, you know, somebody who studies, I know, microbiology doesn't necessarily feel like, well, I'm not going to fit there because of the conversations.
0: No, exactly. And I do want to say Stony Brook has an amazing, actually, it's like a very long history since the late 70s has had a, then it was gay and lesbian center, but then now that's an LGBTQ center. And it's wonderful because the undergrads are so involved with it. But I do think you're mentioning Maria, there's a certain stratification of like, here's the undergrads. And then the grad students, oh, they can just do what the undergrads do. And it's like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. And it's not a temporary stop. Like, I think what I'm emphasizing is That faculty and grad students need to have more synchronicity of these conversations, especially to foster LGBTQ. For a department to know, are they doing enough? Like, just having an open forum. And a lot of the times, that's all it starts, is just have a town hall. I will just say, though, that I'm excited to continue with the office of communications, because there's certainly a need and they recognize it. My whole idea is to create a certain section in the university. Like I'm, t- we're talking physical, but also digitally mm-hmm. to have LGBTQ scholars all across campus, right? I'm thinking faculty, grad, undergrad to have a section of the website where they share syllabi. They share an open chat. They know each other's social media handles like they post videos lectures they've done or just how they interact with the community i think a lot of that could really be expanded and it would help i really think the whole purpose is for no one to feel alone in their journey like because we're not the only ones going through the obstacles
1: how does being an lgbtq plus academic inform the way that you research you write and or teach or plan to you know kind of i guess develop your career if you're kind of not going to teaching.
0: Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling
0: I definitely am very open now about my method of LGBTQ scholarship. Like, and I will say, like, I can point to a specific moment where, you know, but there was a reshifting in even the traditional publishing field. So Mm -hmm. I was so happy to have my first um, published journal article was spring 2021. Um, It was last year. Amazing.
1: Congrats, by the way. Thank you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) And it was called Talking Back to Walt Whitman. But that wasn't actually how my draft started. It's for 19th century gender studies. It was a whole pedagogy about the pandemic issue. So I was really excited. And at first I was trying to do more. So I consider myself a public scholar. So I think first and foremost, when you can identify, not to pigeonhole yourself, but if you can identify, I think I exist outside maybe just tenure track positions. Isn't was an important moment for me of, you know, I really love all of these communities I engage with. And I'm not going to just say that I'm only qualified for tenure track positions. Okay. So that was like check one. And again, if you only, if you really have a goal to be in tenure track, again, that never takes away. Right. But you have to find your voice. And mm-hmm. check two was when I had done a lot of walking tours with Whitman. So since I'm on Long Island, he was born here He's spent a lot of time here. I'm obsessed with the Gilded Age. There's a lot of mansions here. Um, So I've collaborated a lot. And I actually started to record during the pandemic walking tours because it was a wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. to show the area without crowds. The public wanted a journey, right? We all wanted to be on an immersive experience. But when I started to write this article, I could tell I was really trying to cater it to like a sanitized version of here's Whitman without maybe his racist statements or a queerness where he fetishizes people of color, but he amplifies white bodies like the ancient Greeks. And I realized I couldn't find my voice. So thankfully the editors there had a Zoom with me and they're like, we know what you're trying to say and you've done it in your pedagogy. I use now a lot of music videos. I had um, taught the March March song by the Chicks, which I really think is amazing. And I was doing a whole course about questioning Whitman and democracy. Like he was contradictory. A lot of our democratic system is contradictory. I was so happy to have that moment. And I think that's another lesson is never feel that you can't ask questions. Like, and I know it sounds simple, but it was something I had to really break through. I'm like, wait oh, they're giving me this feedback. If I have questions, why don't I meet with them on Zoom? Because I always think you start to learn more about your own voice when people are asking questions of you and you can articulate. So basically my whole article changed to like, why do I incorporate LGBTQ contemporary authors and talk about cruising in the park with Whitman, talk about you know Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, um, Whitman's racism. What does that talk teach us about our current moment? Queerness, queer men, especially queer white men, they have skeletons and <laughs> it's not all on the same level. So that was a wonderful moment.
1: So how do you think then that writing and rhetoric can be more reflective of, of diverse backgrounds and experience? And I think, you know, you kind of covered a little bit of this now and, and you also kind of talked about presenting with your own experiences
0: as well. That memoir experience. In the symposium was something in rhetoric that i love i mean so many texts that i'm drawn to they incorporate their own perspectives the author's perspective if it's if we're talking about scholarship i love now that there's so much of this emphasis on positioning your identity and how does that inform you know the shaping of why you're drawn to a text why you're drawn Like, why was I drawn to Oscar Wilde? And like, I kind of get into a little, especially that article I published, I really want to put that into my dissertation as an epilogue to show people this is what it looks like in practice. Cause I think sometimes, especially a dissertation or which traditionally then would go into um, an academic press Mm -hmm. for a book, didn't have your positionality, but I think it's so important for people to realize Andrew's curious about what it means for, you know, queer white men to check their privileges. And like, we can look to these authors, but also see, it doesn't negate the, you know, exciting creative work they published, right? And I think a lot of the times there's this fallacy, I'll call it, that if you critique a te- like if you critique an author and their background, that you have to throw them out, throw them out. And it's like, no, no, like my whole point is to expand that um, Whitman inspired James Baldwin, but James Baldwin's queer Black voice is extremely different than Whitman. So like, let's teach Baldwin with Whitman, which is what I did. And like, let's teach, I even taught Hairspray, the musical, because I'm a huge musical lover. And um, like, let's look at how democracy is shown in that musical. And it's multiple um, identities. Mm -hmm. um, And even like campy drag performance with Edna Turnblad, right? Like, so what does that say about queerness? And when you realize you don't have to stay. And sometimes I will hear that talking point that they have to know exactly 100% of everything they're teaching. And I'm like, no, no, let it go. Like, and that to me is the writing process too, is the perfectionism of your Mm -hmm. voice. And it's like, I love now when I get like, I want critiques. Like, I want feedback. I want, oh, okay, what, where, where can this develop? Because we're not going to be hundred percent in our grammar. The finished product is going to be so different because it should be collaborative. That's, yeah. that's how books get published too. Like, when yeah. you start to interview authors, I'm like, oh, wait, it went through 10 hands. Like, it took you five years. Like, it's so important to know how do people get a finished product out there? You know, I took up. A- Mm -hmm. post-colonial
1: literature class and again very conservative school I was kind of the only person there who kind of lives in a colonial context still and we read a passage to India and we had like vastly different understandings of that novel you know you know I kind of ended up writing my paper on that after I you know discussed it with with my professor without having to necessarily be like this is my experience with blah blah but you're still going to be bringing Something of yourself, and I think that's kind of
0: what you're you're trying to get at here. I love that you brought up that moment with passage to India, which yes, I know exactly what you're talking about—the <laughs> fetishization of colonialism—and Ian e. Forster does that even with his queer novel Morris, where there, he had a whole fetish with like the aristocratic man falling for the working class man. But it's like, okay, what's the what's the power privilege? Because there's a power privilege, but again, right complicating it. I love complicating it. Like as an instructor, I get so excited when my students say they always are so open because I run a lot of discussion. I want discussion-based classrooms. I don't like to lecture. I like to foster a conversation and I am ready to guide. But I think that it means a lot when students feel empowered to give their interpretation. And They aren't looking to me like, wait, does that match what Andrew thinks of the text? Like a lot of the times they don't know Mm -hmm. my overall interpretation. And actually, as a practice in life, I don't have a one interpretation rule with literature. But there's always another way, like passage to India, what's happening with women? Okay, that's going to be different than asking about post-colonial ideas or class, right? Like these, I don't know how I could have one approach to that. But I think when students... Feel that they have the voice, especially when it comes to LGBTQ conversations. Because I teach now so much LGBTQ literature. And I think a lot of faculty, grad students are nervous to assign texts. Sometimes I've heard this even because it's not fitting that like dead white men trope. And they're worried about the backlash from their students. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, like, once in a while, do I get like a comment? Usually it'll be like a rare comment in an evaluation. Again, like if someone disagrees with a text, I want to hear their interpretation. Like let's bring that conversation to bear. I mean, as an undergrad student, I was the one just like you did with Passage to India. I was very concerned with Uncle Tom's Cabin and the representation of how voices, Harriet Beecher Stowe uses different voices for um, the Black heritage depending on their status the education level depends on the color of their skin and i was like wait this is like very problematic about racial uh racialization of black characters but again it was a great moment to have the conversation i disagree a lot with what i read from my students and their interpretations but it's not my interpretation right it's they have voiced to me how they don't like I just taught the Broadway musical, which was so exciting. I would say with each musical, half of the class loved it and half didn't, but they all voiced why they didn't like it. And Mm -hmm. it was productive. So I think I never hold a text as a hero. It's just so important To listen to our students, right? Like if students are saying they love discussion based and they love feeling that they have agency, that's what it's about to me is why I'm against the lecture model is because students don't feel they can ask questions because you're interrupting this flow of like a 30 minute conversation that the professor's having with themselves. I like to be corrected. And I think that it is a type, in my opinion, of diversity equity model, which is like teaching, writing away from ego. Mm -hmm. Like, and that to me is what is going against gatekeeping is not operating in ego, like not just patting yourself on the back because I really feel that we need, and we are going into collaborative teaching, like Mm -hmm. not even just teaching, but collaborative communities. Like these spaces are opening up and it's exciting to me. I think even my students, one example is with, the Broadway musical, I was able to take a few to Broadway since we're close and see Wicked and Phantom of the Opera. And I was able to get Not like, <laughs> yeah, got tickets for $25 because I got some money, which was wonderful. Um, and so many grew up in New York City who had never been to Broadway because the price point, whatever the factor, that's an experience that I'm going to remember their faces. And you know, it means a lot to me because then they shared it on their social media. And then I would share videos of like us on Broadway or that whole class. I would share a lot on Twitter, Instagram of how I'm teaching even when I taught Wicked by Gregory Maguire, because it was literature in the Broadway musical. We would do the text, then do the musical. And I actually had the opportunity to interview him during the semester on my podcast. And my students submitted questions for him, and then I got to read their voice. And I just love that it's possible, right? Like, you can bring the author to the students. It doesn't have to be a big event, though. Like, he doesn't have to come to Stony Brook. It can be done in this more digital space. And I think for me, the pandemic has taught us that accessibility.
1: And I think it off this that also kind of encourages stepping away from that, you know, old white dead guy model, right? Because, I mean, you can't necessarily have a conversation with, you know, Dostoevsky right now, but, you know, you can reach out to to people who are writing now and who are kind of a little bit more representative of the lives that people are
0: living now. Exactly. And like for my own LGBTQ, like how I even incorporate the conversations when I teach Whitman now, I need to teach contemporary LGBTQ authors. I mean, you brought up being farster. I, just interviewed um, William DeCanzio who wrote ALEC, which is all based on ALEC, the working class mm-hmm. queer man's experience. I feel that if I ever teach EM Farster, I have to teach the new ALEC because I don't want to say you have to show students the relevance. Cause that's not exactly it. I think it's, you have to show them that these conversations exist in our current moment. Like these mm-hmm. topics exist; they're being rethought, right? If someone's doing a TikTok of E.M. Farster and *Passage to India* and complicating it, assign it. Like I think students are going to be more immersed mm-hmm. in the older texts if you give them more contemporary models.
1: Yeah, just like something to connect with. You know, what are some misconceptions that I think you you have either experienced firsthand or kind of seen on twitter or or around about how other people perceive the lgbt community in academia
0: i think it's such a timely question i think that i think the misconception truthfully is that it's coming from a political agenda which i think is also what we saw with people of color black americans being assigned whether it be literature, media, history, of course, that fear that you are indoctrinating. And I just really don't like that term um, because it's been so politicized to take away the conversations. Like, that's what I don't like is even with critical race theory, you know, it's a term from law school, I think originated in Harvard, that you assigning representation of marginalized communities, right? I'll talk about the LGBTQ community. Again, like I said, the majority of my students are really excited to encounter these conversations and texts. Like when they know they can read a 2021 novel, it really, the majority are so happy that they can relate to the material. But yeah, I had one student who had said that questioning Whitman and democracy and bringing in like queer voices, Black black voices. She knew that I was progressive or that I was like teaching a political view and the misconception it saddens me because of teaching what it means to counter an opinion like that like if they had been feeling that mm-hmm. i just reflect on well why didn't they voice well what is what are we doing um with these texts what is the purpose of looking at lgbtq literature cuz that would have been a great moment to talk about why lgbtq literature is just not one narrow path Like Mm -hmm. I've said, there is a plethora of literature that exists now that's all genres like there's LGBTQ romance, mystery, horror, um, historical fiction, right? You name it, nonfiction. The misconception is that there's only one pathway of thinking of what LGBTQ literature is. And sometimes and I would say another misconception, and this comes from within too, academia, is kind of when like, because of your identity, you're tokenized, I talked about Mm -hmm. in a department that sometimes I also feel there can be the checking the box off moment where like, this is, and I've seen this with all marginalized communities. It could be, this is the Women's Literature Week. Okay, we're good, bye. And it's like, or I think it happens a lot with this is the black voices and there'll be Toni Morrison's Beloved and then you move on. And it's I don't, like pedagogy like that i like integrating it like let's be inclusive in terms of oh i'm teaching edith wharton who is dead who's a white woman probably one of the wealthiest authors ever and the house of mirth i am so amazed with its gilded age representation but why is there no characters of color that who would have been in the class that would have been exploited by the Gilded Age families, right? Mm -hmm. So like, and I I bring those moments up, like, just because that author doesn't share a marginalized identity, doesn't mean you don't bring those topics up.
1: It's very much kind of moving away from that idea of treating it as a political thing. And just being, you know, more of like a humanitarian, I guess, for lack of a better word, thing, right? You just want to be able to teach people about different sorts of people and different sorts of, you know, experiences. The Gothic era is not familiar to me because I didn't live in it. That doesn't mean I'm not, you know, if if somebody is teaching a course on Gothic literature, I wouldn't be like, this isn't applicable to me. So I think it's maybe like a reshifting of, of how I guess we approach
0: teaching those um those topics. The, there is, I'm glad you talked about, I think you said the word fear, but I do think there's a fear from those who are not LGBTQ who don't identify in that community that they're gonna be caught out. Mm. And there's that big C word that we don't have to mention. I have my own opinion that it's not operating in the way that some rhetoric talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think rarely do I ever see someone. I am so excited when academics or like I've said, the general public, because I am so accessible now with my ideas and, you know, analytic views that I share on social media. It's so important to have those moments where someone asks me, I've I've never read even just I've never read a gay male author and they'll talk to me and confide in me. And they're like, do you think I should teach that? Like my undergrad advisor, Jan, who I have to shout out will have so many of those moments. And she is, I think she's a baby boomer. She's not, no offense, Jen. She will always open up that door. Like, should I incorporate more of those voices? Like, do you think I should teach a Netflix series, right? Like knowing that they can just ask questions and you're not gonna be caught out for not knowing. And again, but that goes back to the welcoming community, right? If you know that it's a welcoming community, of LGBTQ discussions mm-hmm. this is where departments have such a chance right now to yeah. just create these spaces
1: yeah and I think especially the the I guess the blessing with literature right is that there's always going to be universal theme being able to have those discussions that approach it from that lens maybe makes it less intimidating for students right so that they're sure you know this isn't just oh we're teaching this book because it has representation and it It also has these like major themes that are still accessible.
0: Well, I would just say thank you again, Maria, for this space. Of course, Um, thank you. (laughs) Later today, I get to interview for my podcast, um, someone who has a radio TV background, her name is Sarah uh, Fraser. She used her academic experience to go into radio. She's does like TV, local news, like those programs where you see someone talking about fashion going into the community. Um, But she also like deep dives reality TV. So we're going to talk about, right, what does it mean to analyze reality TV? Because I think there's so many lessons we learn about Mm -hmm. that. I'm I'm working on a Whitman and queer theory essay. It'll be the first, to my knowledge, the first time there's been a discussion about how Whitman hasn't been approached um, from after he died to the current moment. With sexuality. So I'm so excited I get to do that history and journey. So that'll be done by Gail. And then I also was so happy to attend the Queer History Conference in San Francisco because, like I said, I feel the conversations are still going because I'm emailing those who I want to book on my podcast like there's this whole network now that we've created on Instagram. There's accounts that exist like queer modernism, shout out to my friend, Jesse, who posts all of these modernist homoerotic images. And I think to me, that's the model is like, right? If you're out there and you feel that you have to choose one path, Mm -hmm. that doesn't, like you don't have to just shut down your other creative avenues. Right. Allow all of yourself to exist like be comfortable knowing that there are people out there doing the same thing who are not just defining themselves one way. Thank you so much for listening to the ivory tower boiler room or true crime in academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. Our team includes Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, Nicole Arguello, our Marketing Assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our Editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Here's Mary.
2: Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory boiler Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivorytower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays.